You are listening to the East Point Church Sermon Podcast. We're a church that exists to glorify God as a gospel community that is growing in faith and reaching the world. From wherever you are listening, we hope that you are encouraged and challenged by today's sermon. Good morning, East Point Church. Go ahead and open up your Bibles, please, to Mark chapter 12. We're going to be starting in verse 35 this morning, Mark chapter 12. Uh, Just to give you guys a little bit of the lay of the land, so we are down to our final couple of weeks in our series, Return of the King. Have you guys enjoyed this section of Scripture? I have, I'm telling you, I have loved diving into the Scripture every week, and and I, I had a coach tell me, he said, don't think of your don't think of your series as teaching series. Think of them as seasons, right? God brings you to a portion of Scripture for a season to deposit something in the soul of your church. And I just feel like the Lord has been so clear uh, that he wants our hearts. The king has returned to Jerusalem, not to sit on a throne in Jerusalem, but to sit on the throne of our hearts. And so, so grateful for this Scripture. Um, when we wrap this up, we're going to take a two-week jaunt, uh, a special series in November called Shepherd the Flock of God, where we are going to experience a major milestone, a major first for East Point Church. So you don't want to miss that. Uh, After our our two-week series in November, we get to Advent. Advent. How many of you know that Christmas is coming? Santa Claus is officially standing at the entrance of Lowe's, waving and taunting you, telling you you're already late. You're already behind. So hurry, hurry, hurry. So, uh, yeah, Advent is coming. We're looking forward to that. And then uh, we're going to turn the calendar on a brand new year and see what God is going to do at East Point Church. So uh, exciting things ahead. Don't miss it. Don't miss it. I don't know where you were. I don't know how old you were, but I remember where I was when it all started. I was in high school. I was in high school, and I thought that it was just another, another ordinary picture day. Okay? You see, where I grew up, It was very simple. I was a photo day pro, if you will, picture day professional. I knew the routine. You grab the packet, you bring it home, your parents select, very simply, what color do you want the background? So all of us have those, the green, the silver. How many of you were like daring and you got the red? Anybody have the red background in your school pictures? Yeah, me neither. Red's for the devil, right? So we got the nice tones in the background. And then you had to select, like, how many pictures you wanted, right? Remember the wallet-sized pictures? We need to bring back the wallet pictures, don't we? My dad was super dad. He'd take out his wallet. And I'm like, he probably, like, like walks crooked now because his wallet was, like, this fat with family pictures. I'm like, who are you going to, like, show your pictures to in the store? That'll be $12.99. Take out cash and 50 pictures of your children, right? Welcome to the 90s. I don't know. But my dad, there's like only three of us, and he would have 50 pictures because he was super dad. But anyway, picture day was simple until it wasn't. You see, I remember in high school when I brought home the picture day form, and this year there was something new. This year there was a new feature to picture day. There was a wrinkle in my picture day plan. There was something new because my parents had an option for another box. I wonder if you remember this. The first year that you had the option on picture day for an additional $12.99, you can check the box, and they would cover up your picture day blemishes. How many of you remember that? The world changed 
on that day, ladies and gentlemen, because from there, it started with an option. It started with a checkbox to where your picture day could now be airbrushed and you could look better than you were. And for all of our pimply teenage selves, we were like, yes, please, mom, $12.99. Cover up my blemishes. Started from there, and then it just took off. From there, we entered into an age of social media platforms, and I had a space that was mine on the internet. I was able to create a book of my faces that I collected, right? We had platforms where we could now curate. Some of you don't even know what MySpace is, okay? I don't know who to ask, but look it up. You could now start to curate your life. You could start to present the highlights of your life so that people know what your life was like. Social media platforms. From there, it just got crazy. How many of you remember the craze of the filters? Hashtag no filter. Hashtag you're lying. Hashtag they were all filters. Remember that? The Instagram filters, and you can have add the golden glow to your pictures, or you can do black and white, or you can do the retro, and you can just give your life just a sheen that told everybody, yeah, I got it going on. We got past the filter phase, and then we got into, come on, I know, don't lie to me, I know you use this. They started creating apps where you can take a picture, and the apps would make your eyes bigger your lashes longer, your cheeks thinner, your eyebrows more full, your hairline a little bit lower. Remember the apps? Don't lie. You're like deleting the app right now. Uh-huh. Don't let them find it. Now we've gotten to the stage where literally I just saw this last week. I was watching football at home. They now have phones with cameras. This sermon is not sponsored. They have phones with cameras where you can select and delete things out of your picture. Have you guys not seen it yet? Go home today and watch football. It's a Google Pixel. You can take a picture and go, hi, Karen. I don't like Roy in the background. Select Roy and delete Roy from the picture. Vast improvements. Friends, we're now at a stage where artificial intelligence, you don't even need a doctor up a picture. You just tell AI to create a picture, and it will literally create a photo that never happen. How many of you know this morning that things are not always as they appear to be? How many of you know this morning that objects in mirror are closer than they appear and objects in your pictures are not always as they appear? How do we not become a slave to the keeping of appearances? In a world like ours, with all of these apps at our fingertips, how do we not become slave to the keeping of, ex- of appearances? It's exhausting, isn't it? People's opinions have literally become our currency, and all we want is to become rich. We literally measure how many people like our pictures, and then we wonder why we're the most self-conscious generation in human history. Because we're asking you to like me. We get on the internet and we rate each other. How many business owners, right? And you watch your Yelp reviews and you watch your Google reviews and you send emails saying, pretty, pretty, please, please give me five stars. You know it's bad when you're like me and, and you, the first time you get into your Uber and you start acting extra nice to your Uber driver because there's something inside of you that says, I don't want him to give me a bad passenger rating. I'm worried about an Uber driver. He drives Uber. 
I don't know him. Friends, it is exhausting. We have sold out to this game that is called appearances matter, and this game can be paralyzing. It's exhausting. And this keeping of appearances, this image maintenance, and this, this, uh, this need to present well can even extend into our spiritual lives. This desire to present well and to put on a shine can even extend into how we present as godly or spiritual or our approach to church. And so to all of my fellow exhausted people who are keeping up, who are exhausted from keeping up with appearances, Jesus shows us a better way. Thank you, Lord. (laughs) Jesus shows us a way that frees us from the slavery of appearances and instead lets us to live and operate in a mode that is so much more satisfying. Would anybody like to see that this morning? All right. Did that, did that, did I appear okay with my hand raised? Was that too high, too low? Was, here we go. For those of us who want to be done with the keeping of appearances, let me read for us our text, Mark 12, 35 to 44, and then we'll break it down. This is God's word. And as Jesus taught in the temple, he said, how can the scribes say that the Christ is the son of David? David himself and the Holy Spirit declared, the Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. David himself calls him Lord, so how is he his son? And the great throng heard him gladly. And in his teaching, he said, Beware of the scribes who like to walk around in long robes and like greetings in the marketplaces and have the best seats in the synagogues and the places of honor at feasts, who devour widows' houses And for a pretense, make long prayers. They will receive the greater condemnation. And he sat down opposite the treasury and watched the people putting money into the offering box. Many rich people put in large sums. And a poor widow came and put in two small copper coins, which make a penny. And he called his disciples to him and said to them, Truly I say to you, this poor widow has put in more than all those who are contributing to the offering box. For they all contributed out of their abundance. But she, out of her poverty, has put in everything she had, all she had to live on. Father, would you open the eyes of our hearts, open our minds, that we may behold wonderful things from your word. Speak to us, Lord. Change us, for we need you pray this in Jesus' name. And the church said, amen. All right, so Jesus is back. He is teaching in the synagogue. And what does it say? As Jesus taught in the temple, he said, how can the scribes say that the Christ is the son of David? David himself and the Holy Spirit declared, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. David himself calls him Lord. So how is he his son? And the great throng heard him gladly. Let's pause there. The first thing we have to understand is the nature of this Christ. And we learn here that the one from David's line is actually David's Lord. The one who comes from David's line is actually David's Lord. And so we're back. 
And we've seen for weeks now that the scribes have been peppering Jesus with questions, not because they're curious, but because they're trying to trap him. They're trying to cancel Jesus. They're trying to get his words twisted. So they keep peppering with question. And Jesus is like a boxer who's like, can't touch him. And so he's moving. And it says last week that they asked him no more questions. But now it's his turn. And so Jesus comes and he asks a question that shows that these scribes may not be as reliable an authority on the scriptures as they appear to be. Things are not always as they appear. These professional scripture interpreters who we are looking to for giving so much um, uh, uh, clout to, he goes, hey, they may not be as much of an authority as they seem. And so look at the question he says. He goes, why is it that they always refer to the Christ as the son of David? The Christ. How many of you have heard of Christ before? Christ. See, okay, thank you. You've heard of Christ. All right, we're going to start. Page one. Let's go back to the beginning. All right, so we, we tend to think that Christ is Jesus' last name, don't we? Jesus Christ. Sam Cassis. Nice to meet you. No, no, no. Christ was a title. Christ is the Greek word for, for the Hebrew word that is Messiah. So Christ and Messiah, same word. Same word. And in the Old Testament, there was a deep longing and expectation that one day the Christ, the anointed king, would come and his rule would establish a perfect society of justice and righteousness. There is a king, an anointed one, a Messiah, a Christ who would come and bring us back to the days of peace that our people once experienced under King David. And so the Old Testament was very clear that this Christ, that this Messiah to come would come as a descendant of David. Let's look back for a little bit. Jeremiah 23. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch. This is family tree language. There will be a branch off of David's family tree. And he shall reign as king. And he will deal wisely and shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. A branch from David's family tree is coming. The king is coming. This king would be, would be a reflection of, he would hearken back to the greatness of King David to the point where they started to refer to this coming king as David himself. Ezekiel 37, my servant David shall be king over them, and they shall all have one shepherd. They shall walk in my rules and be careful to obey my statutes. And David, my servant, shall be their prince forever. The king would be a descendant of David. This is why Christmas time is coming. This is why Matthew and Luke, this is why they put so much time in the genealogies. You ever notice that? The first 18 verses of Matthew is he begat him, begat him, begat him, and it's like daddy, 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 son, son, son. This was a big deal that Jesus was a branch of David, okay? And so, technically, the scribes are right. The Christ will be a son of David. Technically, they're right. But here's Jesus' point. Even as the scribes meticulously study the scriptures, they have missed a massive clue about the identity of this king. Let me explain. They have focused so much on lineage and family tree. They have focused so much on where he will come from that they have made the mistake of expecting the Messiah to be merely a descendant. Okay? They refer to the one to come as David's son. 
but their expectation is too low. Their understanding of the Christ is too anemic. If they really understood who it was that was coming, they would not call him the son. If they really were paying attention to the scriptures, they would not just refer to him as the one from David's line. They would refer to him as David's Lord. I'm going to show you for David himself. Look at the clue. This is the clue that they missed. When David, under the influence of the Holy Spirit, is penning scripture, when he's writing Psalm 119, look what he says. He says here that the Lord said to my Lord, when David is referring to the king who would come from his family line, he calls him his Lord. David's a king. No one outranks the king. Kings don't call other people Lord, especially your grandson. Have you ever called your grandchild Lord? Have you ever bowed down at the bassinet and said, Master, Master baby. No, we had a lot of babies today. I saw no parents bowing except in tears for the sleepless nights. This is weird, right? What Jesus is saying is David, he realizes, David, under the influence of the Holy Spirit, realizes that the one who comes further down his family tree is actually higher up than him. The one who would come after him is actually before him. And so he calls him Lord. Not only does David call him Lord, but can we look at what Yahweh, can we look at what God says to him? God says to this descendant, sit at my right hand. What? The king who's coming will be no ordinary king. The king who's coming will sit at the right hand of God himself. The father's number two. He doesn't reign in an earthly temple. He reigns from the heavenly throne in power and authority over the world. Yes, he's of David, but guys, way more importantly, he's divine. How did they miss this? How can they call him son when David himself calls him Lord? The scribes have missed it. Paul missed it too. At first, look what Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5. He goes, even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. I used to look at Jesus merely in terms of his family tree. I used to look at Jesus purely in terms of his earthly origin. But now I see him for who he really is. He's a heavenly king who reigns over the world. I used to think that the king would be a reflection of King David, but now I realize that King David was a pixelated preview of the true king to come. How can they call him just a son? We don't look at him purely in terms of his family tree. We see Jesus for who he is. The scribes called him son. David called him Lord. What do you call him? Most important question you'll ever answer in your life. Who is Jesus? When you see Jesus, what do you call him? Just a Jewish teacher? An ancient influencer? Just a historical figure with a legacy? Or do you see a king who sits at the right hand of the Father in heaven? What do you call him? Do you come to Jesus for some advice? Or do you bow before him as Lord? David called him Lord. What do you call him? 
But just remember this, as you evaluate Jesus, as you look at him, things are not always as they appear. Things are not always as they appear. And so the scribes, they've missed it on the Messiah. They thought that they were scripture professionals, but they've missed it on the Messiah. And as a result, they've missed Jesus. Jesus is right here in front of them. The Messiah, the Christ, is peppering them with questions, and they don't even see it. But as we continue, we'll see that that's not the only thing that they've missed. Let's look at verse 38. And in his teaching, he said, Beware of the scribes who like to walk around in long robes and like greetings in the marketplaces and have the best seats in the synagogues and the places of honor at feasts, who devour widows' houses and for a pretense make long prayers. They will receive the greater condemnation. And so before social media, before Twitter was a thing, before Facebook, Jesus is here and he is publicly calling out the danger of rolling with the scribes. He says to the listening congregation, beware of the scribes. There is a danger here. There is something dangerous that you must watch out for. Beware. Do not take this lightly. Do not be naive. There is a danger here. Beware of the scribes. Why? Because an appearance of godliness can be a pretense for glory. Things are not always as they appear. An appearance of godliness can be a pretense for glory. The scribes, they look like the most spiritual people in the neighborhood. You know what I'm talking about? The scribes look like the most godly people on the planet. But beware, objects in mirror are less spiritual than they appear. They make a good show of it. These scribes, they've got the skit down, but Jesus doesn't mince words. He says all of it is a pretense, a false display of spirituality for gain and glory. And so look what he says, right? Let's go, let's spend a day in the life of a scribe. It starts off in the morning and they put on their long robes, long robes, flowing robes. Like think of like a, a bride on her wedding day, right? Like her, her entire attire flows as a way to show this is a majestic person, right? And so they put on their long robes because they just love the swish, you know? They love as they walk through the marketplaces, they love the pageantry of it all. They love how many people uh, turn their head at their impressive outfits. They love the honorifics and the greetings of, oh, rabbi, spiritual leader. They, they just love the show. These are people who are putting on robes, and as they do, they're not visualizing the mantle of responsibility. They're visualizing how many people will turn heads as they walk through the crowd. It's a pretense. They says that they love sitting in their reserved seats. And they walk into the, the synagogue, and the front row is like, reserved for leader. They walk into the feast, and they have the best seats in the house. But as they sit in these seats, they're not aware of the burden of the chair. They're more aware of how visible they will be in these seats so that people can notice them. Man, you should hear these people pray. Friends, when they get on the microphone, they make the longest prayers, and they are impressive. Growing up, we used to tease my dad because it'd be like Thanksgiving dinner, and my mom would just set down the turkey, and it's sizzling, and the mashed potatoes are steaming, and it's just the aroma is just like arresting your nostrils. And my dad would say, let us pray. And 10 minutes later, right, we used to tease my dad, like, dad, he's like, we're so grateful. I'm like, we're so hungry. Dad, please. And now I'm the long praying dad. Isn't that funny how that works out? You just, as dads, we just love those solemn, special moments. 
But if you thought your dad's prayers were long, man, these guys got on the microphone and they put on a show. The these, the thys, the thous, their vocabulary, their extensive scriptural quotations. And they would pray in such a way that everybody in the room listening would go, so spiritual. Wow, they're so fervent. I didn't even know that word. Wow. And the crowd is saying, wow. But God is saying, yuck. Because there's nothing pleasing to him about these prayers because it's a pretense. It's a show. They're not praying so that their words go to his ears. They're praying so that their words would go to people's eyes. You get it? It's all a pretense. And how do we know? Because at the end of the day, look at their dealings. They are devouring widows' houses. They're devouring widows' houses. They are responsible for organizing the temple tax. They are responsible for organizing the tithes. And they're doing it in a way that is taking advantage of the most vulnerable, <clears throat> excuse me, vulnerable people in their community. They're taking advantage of widows and they're leaving them destitute. They are giving an appearance of godliness, but friends, their hearts look nothing like God's. Their hearts are filled with self-interest and greed. Their ears are closed and their hearts are hard toward the needs of others. And Jesus is saying to us this morning, beware of this duplicity, for not all who say God are godly. Not all who appear spiritual are actually spiritual. And he says it very clearly, they will receive the greater condemnation. Those who take a leadership position in God's family will be held to a higher account. They will be held to a higher standard. And, is, and if they are found to be false, they will stand before Jesus Christ, the one who entrusted his people to them. And they will give an account and be condemned. That's heavy stuff, isn't it? And so a couple of takeaways here for us. Number one, I want to speak to those of us in the room who are spiritual leaders. If you're in a leadership position, if you have been entrusted with the care of God's flock, watch your life closely. Keep a close eye on yourself. Your role, may your role never become a means for glory and attention and prestige. Because those who take a leadership role in God's family will be held to a higher standard. Can I just add a tag on here, like to the rest of the church? Do you pray for your leaders? Let me say that a different way. Can you please pray for your leaders? <laughs> it's so heavy. It's so heavy. And it's easy, right? When the lights are on and the microphone is hot, like it's easy to feel like rah, rah, enthusiasm, energy, mission of God. And, and you guys think that people like me are just like the Energizer Bunny, right? Because we are. No, we're not. <laughs> But it's heavy. I mean, yes, it's, it's meaningful. Yes, it is, it's purpose-filled. Yes, this is what God has called us to do. Your community group leaders and your elders and your pastors and your staff and your leaders. Yes, we love it. But there are days where it's heavy. Do you pray for the heart of your leaders, that their hearts would remain pure, that their motives would remain honest? Do you pray that your leaders would continue to, to, to not perform for personal glory, but to serve for Christ's glory? Pray for your leaders. Pray. A mentor once told me, he said, the secret to a long-lasting faithful pastor is the prayers of his people. Pray for your leaders. Second takeaway here, for those of us who are not leaders, this is a passage that calls us and requires a level of discernment. He says, beware. Beware. 
Because not all things are as they appear. Beware. This is a good reminder for us who live in a social media age that not everyone who has a microphone is worth following. Not everybody who has a platform has quality teaching. There are many people out there for the glory of God. Amen? Yes, there are many people out there for the glory of God. And there are many people out there for their own gain and glory. There are many people out there who want you to listen, not because they want to serve you, but because you serve their platform. And so in a social media age, in a global economy, where we are listening to people from all over the globe, church, may we have discernment. Jesus says to you, East Point, beware. We need a level of discernment that goes beyond the amount of followers somebody has. Well, they have a million followers. They must be great. Is that our litmus test? Are we following people to whom we can have close enough access to where the quality of their life, we can determine whether or not the quality of their life deserves to be emulated? That's why the local church is so important. That's why elders are so important and community group leaders. We have to be shepherded by people we know and that know us. And so church, beware. Not all is as it appears. Beware. And so now before you get cynical, before you leave here with a chip on your shoulder, to go, yeah, don't trust anybody. No, 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 no. Before you throw out the baby with the bathwater, Jesus not only shows us an example of fake spirituality, he also shows us an example of genuine devotion. Look at the last couple of verses here. And he sat down opposite the treasury and watched the people putting money into the offering box. Many rich people put in large sums, and a poor widow came and put in two small copper coins, which make a penny. And he called his disciples to him and said to them, truly, I say to you, this poor widow has put in more than all those who are contributing to the offering box. For they all contributed out of their abundance. But she, out of her poverty, has put in everything she had, all she had to live on. And so they're gathering in the temple. And it's connection time. Why don't you guys stand, greet your neighbors. If you have your tithes and offerings, you can put them into the offering box. And so people stand up and and they're mingling. And Jesus, he's sitting in in the rabbi's seat across from the offering box. And he says here that many rich people put in large sums. That's awesome. That's great. There are rich people who are putting in large sums of money into the offering box. And perhaps, I don't know, I wasn't there, but perhaps given the context, there may have even been some flaunting, if you know what I mean. There may have even been some, how many zeros was that, Jesus? Oh, yes. You know, in the offering box. And there might have been people that saying, oops, I dropped my $10,000 check, excuse me. And, you know, you know I don't know. But they're putting in large sums of money. These are what they call big hitters in the ministry world, right? Heavy hitters, well-to-do, people with means. And that's great. And they're putting, pe- they're putting money into the offering box. And then after all those people pass by, opposite of a rich person with large sums, we see a poor widow. She shuffles up to the offering box and she reaches in and, and she grabs... Not even a penny. She's got like two penny halves. They didn't even know they made those. You know, two half pennies. And my mom would say, you don't even have two pennies to rub together. She didn't. She had two half pennies to rub together. And she takes the two copper coins. And I don't know, maybe with tears streaming down her face, maybe with, with tears, tears on her cheeks. And, 
and with, with a level of solemnness and, and maybe even a quiet prayer under her breath, she, and she drops her two pennies on top of all those big checks. And Jesus is so moved by this incident that he calls his disciples over. And he goes, who gave more? What? He goes, no, I saw a lot of people with large sums, and I saw this one, uh, this widow, she had two coins. Who gave more? And imagine Levi, the tax collector, is like, doing his math, you know, and Judas is like, uh, is this even a question? I don't know if you have a finance background, I don't know if you're an accountant, but who gave more? And you're like, is this a trick question? Who gave more? Well, Jesus, he teaches a lesson here that they will never forget. I hope that we never forget. You see, in Jesus' eyes, generosity is a matter of the heart, not appearances. Generosity is a matter of our heart, not a matter of appearances. Jesus doesn't roll like we roll. He doesn't look at the surface. He doesn't just look at the the image that we maintain. He looks past the surfaces and past appearances to the heart of things. And when it comes to generosity, we realize that it's not about the amount. Generosity is not about the amount of zeros on the check. Generosity is not how big the gift is. It's about the heart. The widow's gift does not seem impressive, does it? But things are not always as they appear. It doesn't seem to be as godly. Her gift doesn't seem to be as significant as those large checks. But in Jesus' estimation, he says she put in more. Her gift was larger than all of those other large checks. And again, all of us who are halfway decent at math, we go, come again? Can you you explain your math on Jesus, math Jesus on this one? Because what do you mean she put in more? And he begins to explain. He goes, I know those large sums seem like a lot to you. And they are, they're large. But because they are rich, because they're giving out of their abundance, their particular gift doesn't cost them as much as the widow's. Let me say it this way. When they wrote those checks, they didn't sweat. You know what I'm saying? When they started to write those checks, their pulse didn't quicken, their their temperature didn't rise, there wasn't this like, oh my goodness, are we doing this? Because they can afford it. They gave what they could afford. It's not as sacrificial of a gift. It didn't arrest their heart and minds. This gift is not necessarily an indication of a generous heart. It's just an indication of a well-to-do bank account. We don't know. We don't know their hearts. But the widow, though it seems unimpressive, guys, there's only one word to describe her gift. Radical. Can we say that word together? Radical. Her gift was radical. It was extravagant. It was an act of worship that revealed a heart that was genuinely devoted to God, that was genuinely surrendered to his will. Because her gift, it comes out of her poverty. This was a great sacrifice. Crazy generous. It says that everything she had, she gave it to him. How many of you know her devotion was no pretense? Her spirituality was no veneer. She was not putting on pretenses here. She was giving God all that she had, which for her included her money. Friends, generosity is not always as it appears. It's a matter of the heart. So let me say this, right? As your pastor, I want you to be radically generous. No secret. 
There's no apology. Like, we want you, we want every single person in this room to be a radically generous giver for a few reasons, okay? Number one, and many of you in this room know this, there's no greater joy than giving. How many of you have discovered in your life that it is so much better to give than to receive, right? When you become a giver, there is a joy. It becomes fun. You might even become addicted to giving, okay? And so we want that for every single person in our church. Number two, not only is it full of joy, but it's full of meaning as you start to participate and contribute to something that is bigger than you. Do you know how satisfying it is when you realize that you're making a difference? You are literally helping to advance the gospel. Lives are being changed. Things are happening. And all of that fruit becomes your fruit. So there's even a selfish motivation. You go, I'm giving to that because I want my name on that. I want the fruit that increases to my credit. When you start to advance the gospel, it is so satisfying. But there's even a third reason, and I'll tell you this, because this is what I've experienced in my life. When you become a radically generous giver, it becomes a vaccine for your heart. How many of you have a car that kind of pulls to the left a little bit? Like, you should get that fixed. I'm like, I will in like six years. Not at the top of my priority list. And my steering wheel just kind of pulls to the left. Just It's not a big deal. I just kind of, you know, my left arm is now bigger than my right, you know, because I'm like pushing it the other way. But my steering wheel pulls to the left. And in the same way, my heart, I I have this thing in my heart where my heart also pulls to the left a little bit, you know. My my heart tends to veer off into selfishness. My my heart has this little pull where if I'm not not holding it steady, it tends to, to steer into the desire to accumulate things that I don't need, to impress people that I don't like to get things that I don't want, you know what I mean? Like, I I have this greedy, self-occupied bent in me, but when I give, it is a way that I can shift my heart into kingdom mode. When I give, it inoculates my soul against the the, the temptation of riches and possessions, and it keeps my soul clear to go, no, I am God's, and I will seek first the kingdom of heaven and his righteousness. I want you to become a radically generous giver. But, hear me on this, but it's not about the amount. I want you to become a radically generous giver, but I'm not talking about the size of your gift. I'm not talking about the size of your tithes and offerings. We're talking about your heart. You can give large sums of money, but it's actually not from a heart that's generous. You can put in small amounts of money and be giving radically. Friends, as we give financially to the kingdom of God, as we give not to a church, but as the church, to the mission to change lives and spread the gospel, what's the condition of your heart? Give like the widow. That's our challenge. We never ask for an amount at East Point Church. We never encourage a certain amount. We always, this is our challenge. Hashtag give like the widow. We're going to start a new fund here, right? Tithes, offerings, and the give like a widow fund. Just give like a widow. What could we accomplish together if we gave extravagantly? What could this community of believers accomplish on the shore if we came together and cared more about the kingdom of God and the needy than we did our own selves? What could we accomplish? What would happen in our lives if we worshiped like the widow? Let's find out. Let's find out. And so this morning, we have two examples from two ends of the social hierarchy. We have the rich, popular scribe and the unimpressive, poor widow 
And yet we learn today, friends, that things are not always as they appear. Their lives are our lesson today, that genuine devotion is greater than spiritual appearances. Genuine devotion is greater than spiritual appearances. Growing up, I had a buddy named Glenn, okay? And, and Glenn, we, for years, friends with Glenn and his sister Victoria, and I thought that Glenn came from a single, a single parent home. We only knew Glenn's mom. She was our Sunday school teacher. So it was Glenn's mom, Glenn, and his sister Victoria. I mean, for years, we literally just thought, oh man, single mom at home. And so Glenn invited me over to his house one day. And we go over there, and there's like a dude in their house. I'm like, bro, who is that? He's like, well, that's my dad. And like the dumbest question you could ever ask someone, you have a dad? <laughs> it's like, how do you say that sensitively, right? You have a father, right? I was like, you have a dad? It just blew my mind. I was like, dude, how have I never met your dad? Are you joking me? You have a dad? I'm like going crazy. I'm like, what? Where, where, where is he? How come I've never met him? And he said, well, when we were younger, dad stopped coming to church and he'll never go back. And I was like, what? Why? And he said, because my dad said that the church is full of hypocrites and he wants nothing to do with it. You know what Jesus would say to Glenn's dad? He would say, question mark? Like, like all of them? Like, I agree with you, Glenn's dad. There are hypocrites. There are scribes. Beware. But there are also widows. There are also those who are genuinely devoted to God. And so what if, instead of allowing the hypocrisy and the duplicity that we see in the world, not just in the church world, in the whole world, what if instead of allowing that duplicity to drive us away from God, to throw out the baby with the bathwater, what if we allow that to drive us deeper into a genuine to drive us deeper, to say we will be different. We will be authentic in our worship. We will be genuinely devoted in our hearts. What if we did that? So we say this morning together, Lord, would you examine our hearts? We start here. We're not called to police the world. We're called to shepherd our hearts. Is my spirituality skin deep? Lord, how much has the mentality of the scribe infected me? How much do I keep appearances. And I'm just going to be the first to tell you this morning, and I, I hope I'm not alone, but even if I am, I don't care. I have subscribed. It's been that way for a long time, I'm not going to lie. Since, since my earliest days as a child, I remember I wanted people to like me. And I wanted to, to cover up my blemishes. It wasn't just on picture day, friends. It was my whole life. Cover up the blemishes. Hide the weaknesses. Present well. I 
wake up and I remember that nothing I do can make him love me more and nothing I do can make him love me less. When I'm consciously aware of his love, I'm telling you, on those days, I care less about what people think about me. On those days, I'm less defensive about my shortcomings. On those days, people's criticisms of me don't get under my skin as much. who is genuinely devoted to God. Beyond the appearances, but from the heart, he transforms my surface-level spirituality into a heart-deep devotion. He's replacing my skin-deep godliness for a soul that is truly permeated with the love of God. He's bringing me, by his grace, from one degree of glory to another every day, he's bringing me to a place where I can honestly say, separate me from the love of God. May God's love transform your inner scribe. May his spirit transform you into a genuinely devoted person. That's my prayer for you this week, church, that we would be a church that is just stripped away, stripped away all the religious mumbo-jumbo, all of the, the superficial spirituality, that we, would, that we would just become allergic to the spirit of the age that says, you. You would just be truthful. You would live in the light. Beware of the scribe. But watch the widow. Be warned of the scribe. But emulate the widow. May his love transform you. May his spirit change you. For his glory. Lord, we love you so much, God. Even as we just think We want to thank you again for joining us for this week's sermon podcast. My name is Daniel, and I'm the music and creative pastor here at East Point Church. 
And if you were challenged, encouraged, or impacted in any way by this week's sermon, we would love to hear about it. It's your stories that encourage us and what we do, and we just want to celebrate what God is doing in your life. So you can go ahead and share with us at podcast at epeaston.com. Also, make sure that you subscribe to our channel to stay up to date with the latest sermons. Have a great week.